You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Okay, so if you want to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12, we'll be in verses 37 through 50. Um, I'm going to read the text here, and then we'll, uh, we'll jump in. So John 12, verses 37 through 50. I'll give you a moment to, to get there. Either flip there in your paper copy or turn in there on your device. It's good to hear the pages, and it's also nice to see the rosy glow of God's Word on your faces. So on your masks, I guess. <laughs> Uh, reflecting the glow of your phone. All right, so John 12, verses 37 through 50, we're working through the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is a biography of Jesus by an eyewitness, John, the Apostle John, who was actually with Jesus. And so we're right in the middle of it. And so here we go, John 12, 37. Though he, meaning Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness." If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me, he sent me has himself given me a command, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. All right, so I want to show you a painting. This is called Peasant Woman in Front of a Farmhouse, which is a very creative title. Peasant Woman in Front of a Farmhouse. So this was painted in 1885, and a man received it as payment in 1929 in lieu of payment for supplies for a customer. So a customer couldn't pay for some of the supplies, and this man's like, okay, I'll take your painting and whatever else, and received this painting and didn't think much of it, put it in the nursery of his house where his children were, and and eventually ended up in the attic. And one day when they were doing, his son was doing an estate sale, and they dug out this old painting, didn't think much of it, and sold it at auction in 1968 for $5. It sold for $5. It showed up a little bit later in an antique shop and was bought by Luigi Grosso for just $58. This man then had it checked out, and it turns out that it is one of Vincent van Gogh's very first paintings. And it um, was worth far more than $5. Um, And so it has been sold, and each time it's been sold for more and more money, it's been sold and changed hands several times. And, um, And so... Uh, it actually was just sold, it was sold in 2001 for $1.7 million, and it just was sold this last March to an anonymous buyer who paid $16.9 million. So if you can imagine what it's like to be John Holm, well, he's dead now, he didn't know all this, but John Holm and his family, not knowing that they had a painting in their attic gathering dust that was a masterpiece. It actually has Vincent's signature, I, can't, I don't know if you can see it in here, it might be cut off a little bit. But Vincent actually signed the corner of it. It actually had Vincent Van Gogh's signature on it. And when they did some x-rays of like to check the authenticity, there's the sketchings of another famous painting that Van Gogh did behind, behind this artwork. So they authenticated it as being, no, this is him. Because he, he did this other painting that he originally sketched here and then did this painting. And so it bears the marks of being authentic. 
Um, And what happened was that one person, one family's rejection ended up being another family's benefit, right? What was was the, the, the original home family did not realize what they had in their hands and they they discarded it, but that discarding it came for the benefit of many others. And so today in John chapter 12, we're looking at the rejection of the Jewish people of their Messiah. And what's happened here is that there is this, uh, there's this question that I think John is answering. John is writing several decades after Jesus has ascended into heaven. The other three gospels have been written. And I think John is writing this gospel, this eyewitness account of Jesus, in order to fill in some of the gaps and answer some of the questions about Jesus that were arisen in the first ones. John is the only disciple that's left alive. He's the only eyewitness that has the authority and the ability to actually answer these questions. And under the, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes his account. And I think he's addressing some questions that have come up about Jesus in the decades following his life and death and resurrection. And I think the question that John is answering here as we make the transition from Jesus' ministry to the last week of his life is the question, did God's plan fail? Did God's plan fail? I think that there is a thought in the mind of those who were reading that, particularly if you were of Jewish background, of going, okay, John has written uh, after A.D. 70 when Israel's temple was totally demolished by the Romans, And so if Jesus really was the Jewish Messiah, if he really was the one, why did the Jewish people not receive him? And why, if he was the Jewish Messiah, is now the Jewish people in worse shape than they were before Jesus came? Why is that the case? So I think that's the question here is that, okay, Jesus is awesome. The Gentiles are receiving him. People are getting saved. But did God's plan fail? And the answer will be no. And I think John is answering why. Why? If Jesus did all of these miraculous signs, if Jesus fulfilled all of these prophecies, why did his people not see it? Why did the people who knew their own history the best not receive him as their Messiah? And we have, I think, three reasons in this text why God's plan did not fail. God's plan did not fail, first of all, in verses 37 through 40, because Israel's rejection was described and prophesied by Isaiah. Isaiah is one of the Jewish prophets from 700 years before the time of Christ. And he's ministering and he's doing these amazing things. And he writes, uh, he writes the, um, the, the book of Isaiah, which is under the inspiration of the, scripture, of, 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 um, of the Spirit, he is giving an account. And you actually, if you were to read the entire book of Isaiah, it's 66 chapters long. The first 39 deal with Israel and their failure and the promise of a Messiah. The last 27 deal with how God is going to bring about His, um, how He's going to bring about His salvation. So the the God, the book of Isaiah is almost like the entire Bible summarized. Just as there's 39 books in the Old Testament, the first 39 chapters deal with Israel and their failure to take hold of what God. Uh, planned for them, and the last 27 chapters of Isaiah are a lot like the, the 27 books of the New Testament in that God will keep His promise and He will save people from their sins. And so the book of Isaiah is a fascinating, fascinating book. And what, what John does here in verse 37, we have one of the saddest verses in all the Bible, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. They're looking their Messiah, they're looking their God in the face, and they're saying, nah, we don't want this, which is a very sobering, sobering verse. They still did not believe in him. It's crazy because John has already laid out some of the signs. He turned water into wine in John chapter 2. He healed a royal official's son at a distance in John chapter 4. He healed the lame man by the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. He fed 5,000 people with just a few loaves and a couple of fish in John chapter 6. He walked on water in John chapter 6. He opened the eyes of a man born blind in John chapter 9. And he raised Lazarus from the dead in John 11. And the people who are rejecting him here do not deny that he raised Lazarus from the dead because they've got a murder plot out for both Jesus and Lazarus. They see so clearly what Jesus has done, who he is, the signs he's done, and they will not, they do not believe in him. Why? 
Did God's plan fail? Was his Messiah insufficient? Why did Israel not receive their Messiah? And look at how he explains this. Look in verse 38. So they did, they still they did not believe in him, verse 38. So that, here's the because, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. 700 years before, Isaiah said, Israel will see their Messiah and they will reject him. And he quotes from two passages, Isaiah chapter 53, he quotes the first verse, and then he quotes from the middle of Isaiah chapter 6. These would be the two most famous passages in the book of Isaiah. These would be the ones that every Jewish boy and girl would have memorized. They would know these inside and out. And frankly, of the book of Isaiah, it's probably the one that you probably know the most about is those two. We read Isaiah 53 earlier, and the who will go for me, who will I send, who will go for us, here I am, send me, that's Isaiah chapter 6. So they're still the two most famous passages in Isaiah, and John is quoting to go, the passages that you've been memorizing and that you know by heart predicted you would reject your Savior. The one that's so embedded in your mind predicted that you would do this. Isn't that amazing how hard-hearted we can be, how hard-hearted the Jewish people were. So he quotes from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, and he quotes from Isaiah 6, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. God's plan did not fail with Israel's rejection of its Messiah. It was actually planned that way. It was actually planned that way, and it was predicted 700 years before. So John is laying out the case that no, this was not a failure, because it was predicted and planned 700 years before, and you already have it memorized. You already know it, which is a very sobering thing. So on one level, they've always been spiritually blind. Israel never in their history was a very faithful people. And on another level, they've been blind since 700 B.C. because this has been revealed. They've had it memorized, and they still, with Jesus right in front of them, all the evidences still do not, have not, would not believe. Acts chapter 4 tells us that something interesting, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 2, I think it's chapter 2 or 4, I have it here, men of Israel, this is John, this is Peter when he's preaching a message to all the people, the Holy Spirit comes, there's this crowd gathered, and here's what they said, here's here's how Peter puts the gospel message to this mix of Jewish and Gentile, mostly Jewish people. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, you cannot deny his miracles. You cannot deny that he fulfilled the prophecies. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Your your rejection of him was planned. His murder by the Romans was planned. And listen to this. You delivered him up according to the definite plan and knowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So you have both God's providence and plan and man's responsibility side by side. You crucified him, and you're guilty for that, and God predicted that it would happen, planned that it would happen. That raises all kinds of questions in our minds that we won't have time to answer. And what's fascinating is John doesn't feel like he has to answer those. He does not feel obligated to answer that question for you. And his readers, I don't think, would have, okay, if he's God and this is what brings him glory, then he gets to decide how it goes. So John quotes from the two most famous well-known passages in Isaiah to any Jewish reader and to us as well. And so I would like for us to actually go and look at these. So let's turn to Isaiah chapter 6. John's just quoting a portion of it, but I think he's prompting in their minds the rest of the chapter. He's just... You know, sometimes you quote a line from a movie and the whole movie plot line kind of comes in your head. He's just quoting this Old Testament story and all the whole setting would have jumped into their minds. And I want you to see this setting because John is doing something very intense here. When it's talking about did God's plan fail and why is Israel not, did not receive their Messiah? Why is everything so demolished? What happened You go back to Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53. Isaiah chapter 6. If you want to turn there in your Bible, it'll be on the screen as well, I think. Let me just read the account. You might remember this, but this is important to understand why he quotes these two passages of all the places 
in Scripture to quote. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. This is Isaiah speaking. High and lifted up, the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each, of, each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. So these big seraphim means burning ones. These ones who are glorious who cannot even themselves look at God. Verse 3, And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So just think about this. The throne room of heaven, so glorious, and God is so holy that these big, ginormous angels whose voices shake heaven, that's how powerful these angels are, cannot look at God. God is so much bigger than these angels whose voices can shake heaven that even they can't look at the holiness of God. So this is a massively huge, holy, intense God that Isaiah is beholding. The foundations of the threshold shook. And the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When you come into the presence of the holy God of the Bible, you do not go up and just give him a fist bump. He's not your co-pilot. He's not your buddy. He's not, he is God of the universe, and his holiness makes you realize, oh, no, I am undone. I am undone. I am about to come apart at the seams in the presence of someone so great. And he confesses his sin. He becomes aware of his sin. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. We have the idea of a sacrifice there. There is a sacrifice uh, represented in heaven that has to be applied to Isaiah's sin for him to behold God. And he touched my mouth, the place of sin, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And when I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? You got kind of a picture of the Trinity, right? God in plurality, one God, three persons. Who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And then uh, uh, Isaiah gets the most disappointing commission, the most disappointing job you could imagine. And he said, Go and say to the people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull. Make their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And I said, O Lord, or how long, O Lord? (laughs) That's not the preaching ministry that anybody signs up for, right? Harden these people's hearts. Tell of my greatness and just show just how more deeply sinful they really are. I said, how long, O Lord? For a year, for ten years, how long will I have this ministry of of, of rejection. And here's what he says. Until the cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are, may, are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain, there's a little bit of hope here. I'm going to level my people for their, dis, for their guilt, for their rejection of me. Though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. So, is that not super intense? No one ever reads the last part of Isaiah chapter 6. We like the here I am, send me. We don't always like the ministry that then follows. So here we go. We've got this picture of Israel being a sawed-off stump because of their rejection of God, because of their unfaithfulness to God. It's just a stump. But there is going to be a shoot that comes out of that stump. What looks like it's been dead Something's going to come. Some life is going to emerge from this failure. And that's where we get to Isaiah chapter 52. I'd like actually to look at Isaiah 52. So John is pulling all of this imagery of this holy God who then gives this commission that's actually going to harden his people, not soften them. He's got all this in the back of his mind because this is what Jesus has done. Jesus has drawn some who you would not expect But his presence has actually hardened some of God's people even more, which is exactly what Isaiah said would happen. 
So look at Isaiah 52. I know this is intense, but let's go through this. Uh, Isaiah 52, 13. So we'll get a running start at 53 here. So fast forward through Isaiah 6. There's this, this terrible judgment and guilt, and Israel is pleaded with and confronted, and their hearts just don't change until you get to this glimmer of hope that then begins to emerge, that maybe God has a plan that He's working out, that even the failure of His people is going to be turned around for His glory. And look at verse 52, verse, or chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. So there's this mysterious servant of God who's going to come. And what is he like? What is he like? Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. Do you remember hearing that in Isaiah 6? I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Oh, wait, so this Lord is going to become a servant. The one who was on the, king, who was on the throne that could not be looked at by the angels is going to be a servant on the earth. And he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So his lifting up is going to be a different kind of lifting up. It's going to be the lifting up of the cross. Remember, Jesus said that, right? Unless I be lifted up. When I'm lifted up. So this high and lifted up is a different kind. This servant, this God, is going to be lifted up, and he's going to be so marred, he's going to barely look human. He's going to be so beaten and whipped and torn apart that he's going to be lifted up on a device of execution, the cross. And it's going to be hard to tell he's even a human being. This is the glory of this king. So shall he sprinkle many nations, not just Israel, many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. So Israel will look at this Savior and be more blind than when they started. But there will be nations that look at this Jesus, and somehow they're going to get it supernaturally, right? Though they didn't see, they see. Though they didn't understand, they heard, though they didn't hear, they understand. And look at verse 53. Now he's addressing Israel. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And the surprising thing is, is that it's being revealed to Gentiles. Wow. Look at verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground or the stump, right? That sawed off stump in Isaiah 6 has a little shoot coming out of it. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we, the Jewish people, esteemed him not. Though he had borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. And he was pierced. So you got crucifixion here described 500 years before it was invented. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought his peace. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Every, we have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to slaughter, that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, he, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, that's what John's talking about in chapter 12, the generation, the people who saw him, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, worthy of death, stricken by the transgressions of my people. My people are going to do this to him. Verse 9, And they made his grave with the wicked. And with a rich man in his death, though he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous that he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many 
and makes intercession for the transgressors. Verse 54, sing, O barren one, who did not bear forth, who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. There's going to be more people that come into the kingdom. Not just Jewish people, but the nations. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen their cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Okay? And that, that's crazy that through Israel's rejection of their Messiah, more people are going to be brought to the Savior, and the people of God is going to be far bigger, far grander, far greater, far glorifying, more glorifying to God than if it had just been an ethnic group, one ethnic group. You see what John's saying here? God's plan did not fail. In fact, this was the plan. <clears throat> this was the plan of God. So, here, um, here is what, uh, I like what Dr. Carson says. He says there's four things we need to recognize in this passage. One, God's sovereignty in these matters is never pitted against human responsibility. The fact that God planned it and the fact that they acted in their sin are not contradictions. They're not. The Bible never puts it that way. God's judicial hardening, this is number two, is not the capricious manipulation of an overt arbitrary sovereign towards morally neutral or good people. What he means is, is that this is not like God twisted someone's arm to do what they didn't want to do. They wanted to reject the Messiah and God permitted it. God's sovereignty in these matters is actually a cause of hope. And God's sovereign hardening of people in Isaiah's day was so that Isaiah's commission to an apparently fruitless ministry was the stage in which God would do the strange work of saving all peoples. It's, it's crazy. It's crazy what John is arguing here from the book of Isaiah. Here was Israel's, here's, here's, God's plan did not fail because Israel's problem was about glory, looking at 41 through 43. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now think about this for a minute. How did Isaiah see his glory? Isaiah 6 saw Jesus enthroned in heaven receiving the praise of angels. In Isaiah 50, he saw the glory of Jesus on the cross. Lifted up in his throne, lifted up on the cross, is the glory of Jesus Christ. And Isaiah saw it 700 years beforehand and wrote about it. That's amazing. It's amazing. Verse 42, Nevertheless, even many even of the authorities believed in him, this is confusing. There actually were some that were like, this guy's the Messiah, I think. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory of, that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So look at the difference between Isaiah, who, according to Hebrews 11, was sawn in two for the testimony that he gave in Isaiah. For the writings that he put in Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53, he was killed by his own people by being sawn in half. Isaiah was willing to go public with his belief in a Savior that was coming. These Jewish leaders, who now revere Isaiah, are looking at his writings and saying, nope. Or, if they do believe in some sense, are too afraid to be public with it. And so their faith is essentially worthless. Right? Makes no difference. So I think the way John's putting this is that this was not saving faith that they had. They were in some sense believing, but it didn't actually result in any real fruitfulness. So I don't think it was a saving belief. When it comes to the gospel message, there seems to be two major obstacles for the human heart. One is the holiness of God in Isaiah 6. That God would be so holy that a sinner to be in his presence would be disintegrated is very offensive to people. Now, I'm a pretty good guy, and God knows I'm better than most people. The fact that God is relentlessly holy, that even the angels can't look at him, is very offensive to us because we think we're good people, right? But we're sinners. So the piercing holiness of God is such an offense to us. But also, Isaiah 53, the public humiliation of the cross is an offense to us. That my sin deserved that? I don't want to follow a crucified Savior. I want to follow a king that, that kicks tail, 
right? I don't want one that dies on a cross. I don't want one that says, Father, forgive them. I want one that rages and takes, takes. So the public humiliation of the cross is an offense, and that's what Paul says. As we preach Christ, we preach Christ crucified, an offense and a stumbling block. But it's the power of God unto salvation. So this is an intense thing that John is doing here. And their problem was glory. They were convinced in, on some level that Jesus was the Messiah, but they just loved glory better. They loved the glory of man more than they loved the glory of God. The holiness of God, the humiliation of the cross, were just too hard to overcome. They were not willing to humble themselves and receive this Savior, at least not publicly. But look at what here Jesus now enters the picture. Verse 44, Israel's loss is the world's gain. Israel didn't realize they had the artwork, right, that was worth millions, and they sold it off. But now the Gentiles have purchased it, have purchased it and, and, and gained. That's you and me. My guess is that most of us in here are not Jewish. And by God's grace, this sobering rejection has now opened the way for us to possess the masterpiece, for us to possess the Christ. And here's what Jesus says. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me. So what went from being Israel's Messiah now becomes a whoever. Whoever believes in me. Rich or poor, young or old, no matter what nation or nationality or background, whoever believes in me. Whoever looks at the holiness of God and the humiliation of the cross and says, I still want it, can have it. Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but the one who sent me, which is Yahweh, God of heaven. So you're receiving Israel's God when you receive Jesus. He is Israel's Messiah. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have, not come, in, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Remember, he's talked about the blindness. The blindness that the Israelite people have been afflicted with in this moment that's going to lead to Jesus' crucifixion. But he's like, I didn't come to do that. I didn't come to bring darkness. I came to bring light. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. Jesus didn't come the first time to bring judgment. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So, so Jesus came to save. That's what John 3.17 says. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever, whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And Jesus is saying, That's, my, my aim here is not to lay down the hammer on anybody. My goal is to fulfill the plan of God and offer salvation, light, forgiveness to anyone who will come. I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So there is going to be a judgment that comes for those that reject him. But Jesus is like, this is, that is not this day. Today is the day of salvation. And from now until the day you die or Christ returns is a day of salvation, an open invitation to believe in Israel's Messiah and be brought in. But there will come a day where his words will be a judgment on them. Just like Isaiah's words was a judgment on the Israelites. So now you know. Now you know. So if you reject Jesus now and continue to do so for the rest of your life, the words you've read today will be read at your judgment. And you will be judged by what you heard today. For I have not spoken on my own authority, he says in verse 49, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak, and I know this, this commandment is eternal life. So this statement, this gospel message, is not meant to pound you down. It's meant to give you hope. The fact that though you have sinned against a holy God and deserve wrath, lay down your rejection of him. Come to him. He's like, my aim here is not judgment but salvation. My aim is salvation. And this commandment, though it feels intense, is to bring eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So this is Jesus' emphatic no. God's plan did not fail. God's plan did not fail. The rejection of Jesus as the Jewish Messiah has been used and even in some sense planned by God to make Jesus the Savior of the whole world. I don't understand how and why God chose, but I assume that he is an infinite being 
and he knows what different things would happen if people had made a different choice. If you'd have showed up one minute earlier than you did this morning, or if you'd have ate Cheerios instead of toast, I, I assume God knows exactly what kind of world would have existed if every single little decision went. And this is the route that God chose because it would bring him the most glory. And that's way out of our pay grade, right? So we do have these questions, but we also need to realize that we're dealing with an infinite being who knows everything and who is infinitely good. And so we are confronted here with the fact that we need to submit ourselves to a God who is above us and yet has worked out a plan to save us. Let's not reject Jesus. So in Romans chapter 11, Paul talks about this. Let's go to Romans chapter 11 and then we'll close with some applications. So this is a this is kind of a big <laughs> this is a big heavy message because that's where John takes us and we just preach the next passage in scripture whether it's easy or hard whether we like it or not we assume all of God's word is breathed out by him and is good for us and that God planned long ago for us to hear this word today in this way that we might glory in him but here's what Paul has to say in in Romans chapter 11 part of the passage will be up on the screen but I'm going to read some additional parts of it as well. Romans, 1, Romans 11, chapter 1. So Romans, Paul the Apostle is laying out the argument of the gospel. And it's just a masterful treatment of how God has saved humanity, both Jew and Gentile. And now he's getting to the end of his explanation in chapter 11. And the question is, well, what about Israel? I don't, I don't get this. And here's what he says. I ask then, has God rejected his people? This is Romans 11, chapter 1. Paul's answer is, by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There's still some who believe. There's still some in there that are mine. There are some in there that I have preserved. So too, at the present time, Paul's saying right now, at the same general time period that John is writing his gospel, I have kept, uh, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And Paul's like, I'm one of them. I'm one of those Jewish people that used to reject and persecute this Jesus, but God has turned my heart. God has lifted the scales from my eyes. I was blinded for a while, but now I see the Savior, and there are Jewish people who are being saved by Jesus Christ, is what he's saying. No, God has not rejected his people. He has used their failure and their blindness to bring about his plan in a way that just blows our mind. Verse 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking? which is John's question, which is the question John's answering. Did, did they fail? The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not, heard, that would not hear down to this day. Verse, uh, verse, I'm going to skip down to verse 11 and 12. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make them jealous. Wait a minute, the Gentiles are getting our Messiah. Wait a minute, we should believe in him. (laughs) We rejected him, huge mistake, but it's not too late, right? And some will turn back. Paul himself going, I am example number one of someone who rejected the Messiah, helped kill some of his followers, was persecuting them, and then I realized Oh, God opened my eyes and now I've been brought in. God has been gracious that though he used my hardened heart to bring about his plan, he has now been gracious to let me turn back to him. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? How much more would God be glorified to bring his people back to their Savior? that their mistake, their rejection, their blindness would be turned around, God would get twice the glory than if they'd accepted him at the beginning. Does that make sense? Do you see the argument? Okay, hang with me. Verse 25, 
Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come on Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, because all the people of God will now include not just one ethnic group, but all ethnic groups. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. The Jewish people, enemies of their own Messiah so that you could have salvation extended to you. But as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as at one time you were disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, this is your story, isn't it? Wasn't there a time when you did not receive Jesus? Wasn't there a time when you were rejecting and sinning against Him? And God brought you back around. Israel is that same thing. There's an opportunity for all people to be brought to salvation. For just as you were one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, We've all, under the providence of God, been born into sin, that he might have mercy on all. You would never experience God as merciful and gracious if you had not been dead in sin and then made alive. That's, um, that is mind-blowing, that God had this plan from the beginning. And this is where Paul leaves it, because Paul gets to the point where human understanding fails. Even under the inspiration of the Spirit, there's so many questions about God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And, and Paul goes, that's it. That's as high as I can go. And here's what he says in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. We are way over our heads now. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. Who, who can critique God and his plan to save us? For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To, to him be glory forever. Amen. So Israel's loss, at least temporarily, is the world's gain because he's the Savior for all men. He was crucified. And Paul's like, we reach a point where our questions we can't have the answers to, and so we worship. We worship a God that's much bigger and much better than we could imagine, right? So what's the reason for all this? To make you right with God, verses 44 and 45. To bring you out of darkness, verse 46. To save believers now and judge unbelievers later, verses 47 and 48. And to obey the Father's command in verses 49 and 50. So this is meant, this is meant to make you in awe of God. This is not to make you angry at God. This is not meant to make you question God. This is meant for you to stand in awe like Isaiah did in Isaiah 6 and go, oh my goodness, I had no idea that he was this holy. I had no idea that he was this kind of God. So here's a couple of applications and we're done. God is so much further above us than we could ever imagine. Is he not? God is totally in charge in the working out of salvation. And this actually gives me confidence about my failures, that my failures don't thwart the plan of God. Did God's plan fail because Israel rejected their Messiah? Absolutely not. God worked it in, which means that our failures and our, pro- and our, um, our missteps and our rejections can be used of God for glory. That's good news. Jesus is the only way to eternal life with God. God went to such a multi-millennium plan to bring you the gospel today. Multiple thousands of years of intricately working out a billion different decisions so that you today would have the opportunity to look upon Jesus, the only sinless one who died on the cross for your sins and rose again for your justification. And if you will believe in him, you will have eternal life. You will escape judgment and everything that Jesus purchased can be yours today. Isn't that amazing that God arranged all of human history to bring you to this moment? And perhaps now is the time that you cross over from death to life, from light, from darkness to light, and receive Jesus Christ. And receiving Jesus is a package deal. We have to receive both his holiness and his humiliation. We don't get to take 
pick and choose what of Jesus we like. When we come to Jesus, we come to him and we submit ourselves totally to him. We trust totally in him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for a very challenging passage. You know how much study went in for me to try to figure out how to communicate this, Lord, and um, we are just blown away. There are so many things in here that probably offend us in some ways. There are probably some things in here that confuse us, and Lord, maybe in some ways that's the point, is that you don't bow to us, we bow to you. And we thank you, God, that though you could have just wiped the slate clean, you could have just consigned us to hell the very moment we were born, you could have cut off the human race right after Adam and Eve, but you didn't, and you began to set in motion a plan that would include both your goodness and our sins somehow, the sins of people, the sins of individuals, and yet still work that into your plan to bring yourself glory, and we don't understand that, but we just bow our knee in worship of you. And Lord, we look to Jesus and we accept his free offer of grace and forgiveness. So Lord, thank you for working out this plan on our behalf. And I pray that we would not pass, that we would not miss out on the treasure, on the masterpiece that is Jesus Christ. So let us take hold of him by faith now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you guys stand and sing with me? survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbidden, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so? seated. We'll just take just a few moments here, not very long, but if you'll indulge us, we would love to entertain some questions. Dylan's going to moderate it today. Justin's preaching at another church today. He usually does these questions with me, so we've, we've called in the sub. The humble um, student of Justin McGeary. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Pupil, that's the word I was yep. looking for. So, we got some questions here today, right? Okay. So, you did a really good job of explaining every question that I was going to ask. So... <laughs> If anybody has any questions in the room, that would be very helpful. Um, I just want to make sure we're not putting any online. Now. So I think we already have one. Okay. Um, Hunter, what's your Jacob. Or, or, or Jacob. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Why is the painting so Why? Because it was painted by a famous painter. Everything that he has painted is worth millions, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars. And they didn't know it was painted by this famous guy. So... 
the fact that the guy who created it was this famous artist made the painting valuable. So that's actually true of us. Like because God made us in his image, because God is so great, every human being has value. So the value of the artist, the famousness of the artist, and the, the quality of his craftsmanship is what makes things valuable. So our value is rooted in that God made us, right? So we're his masterpiece. Ephesians 2 talks about that, our masterpiece in Christ. But it's famous and valuable because the artist who painted it was famous. Does that make sense? So I took a little twist there. Hunter, did you have a question? That was a good question, by the way. Yeah, thank you. So I have a, a difficult question that I struggle with. So I think good. we're talking about Calvinism, double predestination. <laughs> um, some people are predestined to be sons of Christ, sons of God, and some, their hearts are hardened and they eyes are open. And so my question with that is, then doesn't that contradict two things? One, when Jesus says, all who believe will come to me, but it's not all that come. And then number two, doesn't that take away free will of man? If we're predestined to not be able to believe? Should I repeat that question? <laughs> yes. This is a little long. You should. So yeah. it's a very complicated question. Um, Calvinism and, and predestination, right? And how does that work in with man's choice? So if we have, if God is the one who gives us faith, then is that fair? That God shut the eyes of the Pharisees? Or better yet, in the Old Testament, when God hardens the heart of Pharaoh, how is that fair? Is that fair? Yeah, it, it, I don't know if God's really interested in fairness. He does what's right, um, and so and he does what's good. Um, yeah, I think you're asking a question that generations of theologians have tried to unravel. And even Paul reaches a point, you can see him inching closer to that in Romans 9 through 11, that even he goes, oh, the wisdom and knowledge of God, you know, and, and that Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the revealed things are for us. So exactly how that works out, God just hasn't revealed to us um, exactly how he does that. But he does reveal that he does. Like, it's not like we can sidestep it because it's Ephesians 1 and 2. All throughout John, we've seen that. You know, um, he, he says to Nicodemus, unless you're born again. And he's like, well, how do I do that? Well, the Spirit does that, and he does it as he wishes. And you're like, oh, <laughs> I can't prearrange my own salvation, right? So God does that work in the heart. And Ephesians 2 talks about us being dead in our trespasses and sin, but God made us alive. And it says, for, grace, uh, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourself, which is speaking of the faith. The faith didn't come from you. It is a gift of God, not by works, lest man can boast. God actually has to give the faith in order to receive him, right? So humanity in its natural state is actually incapable of, of expressing saving faith unless the Lord gives it. So the gospel is freely offered to all. But, you know, just like if I were to go out into the cemetery and say, hey, dinner's ready, come and get it, it's freely offered to all, but only those whom God gives ears and eyes can respond to it. So I don't, it is, it's, it's tough, and you can see me kind of swimming around it. Um, and so, yeah, and, and maybe that's part of God's point is that you're not sovereign. Like, so, but we are responsible for our own actions, so God doesn't in that sense, take away uh, the responsibility of our choices, but we're not, yeah, so we are enslaved to our nature, you know, so uh, Luther wrote a book called The Bondage of the Will, meaning that our, bond, our will is in bondage to our nature, you know, a dog will do what a dog's nature does, uh, you know, a lion will do what a lion does, like, you know, you know these different things, like, it will act and make decisions according to its nature. And if our nature is, is rebellion against God and the exaltation of ourself, we're going to choose that. So we're free to the extent that, you know. And then what Jonathan Edwards, he wrote a book called The Freedom of the Will, and he says we're free to do whatever we want. The problem is our wanters are corrupted. So you are totally free to make whatever decision you want, but you have a want that goes against God. So God, unless God changes the wanter, so... And again, I'm not answering your question. I'm just buying time. So, yeah. So we are by nature children of wrath. And so we, we're free 
to do what we want. The problem is, is that we want deity. We want to be our own gods. And I think that's why the holiness of God is so offensive. I think that's why the humiliation of Christ is so offensive is because we want to think we can save ourselves and we want the credit for choosing God. There was something in me that chose God and that person didn't. So I'm a little bit better than them. Oh yeah, salvation's by grace, but I chose him, he didn't. I guess I'm a little better than him. And it's just like God's wanting to take that totally away. Going, no, I... So, yeah. Anyway. I, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think diminishing God's sovereignty is ever the answer there. But exactly how that works out and how responsibility works, I think is... And it's amazing. The scriptures... Maybe this isn't a uniquely American Western where our individualism takes such root because the scriptures, it doesn't seem like Bible times people are bothered by that at all. The king, the king is sovereign, whatever the king decides. We live in a democracy where it's like, oh, I get a say and I have rights. And it's like, Jesus is, he's the king and what he decrees goes. And I don't know. So anyway, I didn't really answer the question, but hopefully added some more (laughs) things to think about. Um, I do. Does anybody else have a question before I ask one? Um, I was going to ask you, so the officials, right, there's a bunch of officials that believe in somewhat, you kind of address that, like they don't really believe, but yeah. they, the word is believe in the Bible, right? Yeah. Um, but not of like a saving grace. So I don't think so, but I don't know. How, if, so if that's the case, then how do we know, um, as a Christian, how do we know that we're not those officials, that we believe but we still love the glory of man because it says that these officials love the glory of man more than the glory of God? Yeah, I think there's, there's, there's two ways to look at this. I think, um, and people went different directions. When I studied on this, different theologians and pastors took it two different ways. One is they believed, but they were just kind of hidden. So it was a true saving belief. John does not paint it in any positive sense. He goes, yeah, there were some who seemed to believe, but because they loved the glory of God than the glory of the man, it really ended up making no difference. So whether they may have been genuinely saved and just basically in terms of the course of Jesus's journey to the cross, it made no difference. Their belief made no difference, right? So what good did their belief do if they kept it to themselves, right? So maybe they're genuinely saved, and at least for John's purposes of speaking of how the Jewish rejection of the Messiah brings about the plan of God. There were a few in there that did believe, but it didn't. Because they kept silent, it really didn't change anything. So their faith made no difference. So either they're not true believers or they're believers, but their belief really made no difference, which is the case for us. Like our faith doesn't do the world any good if we don't share it, right? So, yeah. I don't know if that, does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. So I don't know which one of those it is, to be honest with you. And it doesn't seem like anybody really knows exactly what John means there other than if there were some who believed in there, it didn't make any difference because they kept silent. So. No, yeah, obviously the evidence, the lack of evidence against, you know, a transformation in their hearts is obvious, like right? nothing changes. Right, so. yeah. So how do we know? Like, well, let's just strive to not be afraid of man and to love the glory of God more than we love the glory of man. So, and that's why we cling to Jesus, right? Because <laughs> we do get it wrong. So, <laughs> yep. okay, man, I'm exhausted. exhausted. Oh, do we want to do one more? Yeah, sure. All right, go ahead, Connor. Jacob or Jacob. What's that? Why did he not? Why did Jesus not have a wife? Oh my goodness! You ask <laughs> you ask questions that I'm not thinking about. Um, let's talk later because I think. That's a longer answer and a little off the topic. So good question. I don't want to sidestep your question, but yeah. Okay, let's close. So thanks for hanging in there. Like I really wrestled with this message and I want what John means to communicate to come across. And the fact that he was pulling in Isaiah and Paul describes some of this in Romans chapter 11. Um, It just seemed important for us to try to lay out the biblical case as best we can, even if we can't totally understand it, and assume that it was placed here for our benefit, for our good. So let us wrestle through these things with hope, seeking to understand what God has purchased for us. And let's not miss Jesus' words that I came to bring light into darkness, right? (laughs) So don't, don't let the fact that some of this confuses you lead you into darkness. It's meant to lead you to light and the glory of Jesus and the awe of Him, okay? So don't miss the point 
as you get into sort of the theological implications, don't miss the bigger point that the glory of Jesus and trusting in him is the point of John 12. Okay, so here's our benediction from Ephesians chapter 1. So if you'd please stand, and here's the good words. That's what benediction means. It's just a good word of blessing to you. We pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ... The Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Because we need it in passages like this, right? We need His Spirit to open. Having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? According to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places. So that's a big prayer that Paul has for the Ephesians, that they would begin to wrap their mind around all that God is done and has done in Jesus. And let's pray that that's the case for us too, that we can get our, begin to get our heads and hearts around what all God has done to bring us to Himself. That's a wonderful thing. So that's my prayer for us. Um, you are dismissed. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.